Welcome to Series 2, Episode 5 of Leading in a Climate-Changed World from Olivier Mythodrama. In this episode, Robin talks to Jojo Mehta, co-founder and director of ecological defence integrity EcocideLaw.com and the global campaign Stop Ecocide. Jojo explains Stop Ecocide and the campaign's attempt to create a law to criminalise ecological damage. Corporations and governments lobby for laws to suit the way they operate, but often this is at the detriment of the environment. She discusses the contribution of the great Polly Higgins, who embodied the purpose of the campaign, and whose baton has well and truly passed on to Jojo and the Stop Ecocide team. They talk about countries who are engaging with the campaign, and where leadership on a global scale can come from. Is it only the countries that are under threat who are taking Ecocide seriously? Robin and Jojo discuss service and having a sense of place and purpose and how to become an integral part of the interconnectivity of the planet, as well as the attributes of leadership that are vital to help make sense of our world. You can become an earth protector by visiting www.stopecocide.earth and don't forget to get in touch with us. Uh, email is hello at leadinginthclimatechangeworld.com. You can listen to the podcast or watch it on YouTube and we're on Twitter and Facebook, all of the socials as well. Give us a shout if you want to recommend anybody for the podcast or if you've got any feedback. Hope you enjoy the episode. Over to Robin and Jojo. So welcome everybody to our podcast in a series leading in a climate changed world. It's a great pleasure today to be speaking to Jojo Mehta, who I've known of for quite a while. She campaigns or heads up the campaign initiated by the late and great Polly Higgins for the establishment of a law of ecocide, which is designed to hold nations and corporations responsible for crimes against the environment. With degrees in languages and anthropology, Jojo's legal training was old style, direct apprenticeship with Polly. And she came to work with Polly via a grassroots eco-activist background, having previously worked in tourism, manufacturing and design, product design, web design, graphic design. All of these, while seemingly unconnected, gave her a rather unusual skill set, which she has found hugely useful in her current work. So a big welcome and thank you for being with us today, Jojo. Thank you so much. So maybe you could start by just explaining for those who are not so aware of it, what Ecocide is and kind of what the campaign is about and also how much you've been able to progress that. Absolutely. So um, simply defined, I mean, ecocide is mass damage and destruction to natural ecosystems. So, I mean, in, in, in layman's terms, serious harm to the natural world. Um, and it, our aim as a campaign, as was um, Polly's in her, the, really the last decade of her life, she was dedicated to this, was is to promote the addition of ecocide to international criminal law, making it an, an atrocity crime alongside uh, crimes against humanity, genocide, war crimes. And so it's, it's a very you know, large scale plan, <laughs> if you like, um, but it's surprisingly achievable in the sense that um, amending the document that governs international criminal law, the Rome Statute, has very straightforward procedure. It does involve um, a head of state or a group of heads of state actually proposing that amendment. So ultimately, our job is one of advocacy. If you like, we're a sort of international lobbying group um, with a legal bent, clearly. Um, and we have various you know, legal firms who work with us. Um, and we 
we talk with and we, we engage with uh, diplomatic um, delegations from the small climate vulnerable states who have the biggest incentive to take this forward at the international level. And how far have you got so far? And I know that one of the debates has been, does it need a separate law on ecocide or is it part of kind of crimes against humanity and, and, and other kind of more overarching law that, that already exists? So what's, what's your take on that and how far have you got towards creating this ecocide? So there are, there are some possibilities for um, prosecuting uh, crimes against the environment under existing law, but nothing that would really cover the level of damage and destruction that we're currently seeing around the globe. Um, and so, you know, Polly's aim and, and our aim continuing is to ultimately to bring a standalone crime of ecocide um, because the crimes against humanity obviously um, deal specifically with people. Um, and what we're looking to do is to actually criminalize mass damage and destruction to nature. Um, and ultimately, we believe that this is you know, all deeply interlinked um, and that the main reason that such a thing doesn't exist at the moment is because our legal system is so deeply anthropocentric. You know, we have um, become, particularly in so-called first world culture, very um, strongly separated from nature. And so we, you know, we think of ourselves as this dominant species that, um, you know, in our current you know, still mainstream economic thinking. It's all about, you know, exploiting apparently infinite resources. Um, and from our perspective, this is a little bit like the flat earthers, you know, effectively you can carry on believing in economic perpetual growth, um, but you're actually not dealing with reality if that's what you're believing. Um, so we believe that actually criminalizing serious harm to nature makes um, a kind of creates a moral baseline. It actually draws a red line and says that damaging ecosystems, the seriously damaging ecosystems is actually equivalent to damaging people. Right, it's super important work. And, and, and how, who are the early adopters? Who are the people who you feel are the countries that are taking this seriously and feel like they're really on your side with this? So this, the, the, the countries that we're working with at the moment are the small climate vulnerable states from the Pacific, the Pacific Island states. Um, now, as of course, this is diplomatic work, um, there's a certain level of confidentiality that we have to maintain because we have to go at the pace of those countries that we're working with. Um, we, we are working specifically with Vanuatu. Um, they're the only country so far that has publicly stated that they're working with us. Um, we are also working with some other states. Um, and the key focus of our work is to accompany those, those states and delegates from those states to the correct forum, which is the International Criminal Court, which has an annual conference every December. So that's where this can potentially be taken forward. And we've been accompanying these small islands in various ways over the last three years. And in fact, when we first took delegates from Vanuatu in 2016, it was the first time a Pacific island had ever attended that forum. Um, because, you know, with war crimes and genocide, perhaps it didn't feel so relevant but once you bring ecocide into play um, suddenly there's a whole nother discourse that can come around come about in that arena um, so this year we're, we, we've got several events planned for the conference um, which is all about kind of building alliances and profile raising around this issue so that the conversation is much more in 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 the arena if you like um, the earliest that an actual amendment could be proposed uh, would be next year 2020 um, we don't we, we can't in any way guarantee that because you know obviously diplomatic work goes at the pace it goes at and you know in our ideal world it would be next year um, that depends a little bit on you know how quickly those alliances can be built but what I will say is that um, 
this year, you know, it's been moving in leaps and bounds um, because of the huge jump in awareness, in, in public awareness and governmental awareness of what's actually happening on the planet. So, you know, the climate and ecological emergency, um, you know, thanks to the kind of amazing alarm call that's been created by people like Greta Thunberg, by Extinction Rebellion and so on, that whole discourse has become far more center stage. And what that means for us is that people can now hear what we're saying, um, you know, also at the diplomatic level, far more clearly than they were able to before. Right, so that takes me into, into two directions, what you said so far. I mean, one is that I noticed that I'm a bit sad, but maybe it's also inevitable that the people or the countries that are taking it up first are the ones that are most threatened. I mean, I'm wondering where is, the, where is the leadership? Do you see the leadership on a global scale from any of the countries that are not so immediately threatened, but actually real, realize there's a moral responsibility here? That's one um, question. Maybe we'll start there. <laughs> okay, well, let's start there. Um, there are some countries, there are some European countries that where this discourse is more familiar than others. Um, the obvious ones are France, which is discussing again um, at the moment, there's a, um, the question of ecocide is coming up in their parliamentary discussions. So that's, uh, that's one country. And in fact, this, um, this summer, Macron actually used the term ecocide to describe what was happening in the Amazon. And that's quite new that heads of state are actually using that word to describe what's happening because it's, you know, it's, it's a relatively um, you know, new kind of level of attention to be giving to the concept. Um, the other country that is also uh, sort of open to this is potentially Sweden, as in we, we have quite a, there's a, quite a strong group of advocates in Sweden um, who have good links with government there. Um, but at the moment, we don't have, um, you know, a, a European or a, or a Western, perhaps I should say Northern, um, strong economic power actually actively taking this up that is happening with the islands um, so and we we believe that actually the, the one of the really powerful moments possibly the powerful moment in this campaign will be when a head of state or a group actually decide to table this amendment because at that point you have a very strong moral lever for the more affluent countries which i can you know as you can probably imagine civil society will be enthusiastically taking up you know and saying look those guys over there have actually put on paper that they believe this should be a crime what's your position you know so it creates a very strong moral lever at that point so you know we, we certainly expect that you know the sort of second tier take up could be a lot broader Right. I was wondering whether you're going to name New Zealand or Canada or countries like that, which various other people in these podcast series have said, you know, occasionally anyway, exhibiting the kind of leadership that we need at the moment, whether those countries are also in, in this dialogue. Um, they may certainly be, um, uh, you know, at, at the sort of next stage of discussions. We don't happen to have had conversation with them directly ourselves. Um, but, uh, you know, I certainly wouldn't want to rule anything out. I mean, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, even the UK can surprise you. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know the, the, the UK is probably one of the last countries we expected to, um, you know, even declare a climate emergency. And OK, they haven't really done anything about it, but at least they said it, you know, so... It, one can be surprised and I wouldn't want to rule anything out. Um, but certainly for the moment, you know, we work, we work with what we have. Um, yeah. And let's hope for the best on that one. <laughs> right. So, I mean, clearly the focus of your, your work and I imagine a big chunk of your life is around ecocide and, 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 and working on that campaign, but I want to broaden the conversation a bit into leadership in general. You've mentioned mm -hmm. kind of Greta Thunberg and the extinction rebellion. I'm wondering where you see, the kind of leadership that you feel is needed now 
to catalyze mm. the change that we require to address the climate emergency, be that political leadership, corporate mm. leadership, NGO leadership, grassroots leadership. Where are you experiencing or noticing seeds I of mean, hope? Like. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that I, 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 mean, I think, you know, as you say, I think Greta and the Extinction Rebellion are two different kinds of examples of where we're, we're seeing that. Um, you know, one is obviously Greta's incredible directness and absolute refusal to compromise um, and sort of, you know, just really telling it like it is. There's a level of honesty there um, that is quite extraordinary and you know, in a sense, it shouldn't be extraordinary, in my opinion, but it, but it, it is, it has been in the, in the context of the kind of leadership that we see uh, from politicians generally. And I think that's also reflected in the fact that, um, you know, when certainly in the UK, when you, the population were asked, you know, how much trust they had in politicians. I mean, in recent years, it's been kind of at an all time low. Um, so I think, you know, and, and a lot of that is, you know, said to be that, you know, the, you ju they just don't trust what they say. Um, whereas, you know, this uncompromising honesty, obviously, is, it creates a huge and refreshing contrast to that. Um, I think with Extinction Rebellion, there's a, a really interesting phenomenon um, in that, and, and I love this about the rebellion, actually, this whole kind of, um, uh, sort of value set if you like that include you know that says we are all crew you know it, we're all effectively we're all active parts of what we're doing um so that you know i mean it's i mean obviously we, nobody can deny that you know the co-founders have been you know have become you know major voices for the rebellion you know and uh, you know among others but in terms of the kind of on the ground action that you see with Extinction Rebellion, there is this extraordinary sense of collaborative action. And of, you know, you see something that needs doing, you do it. Um, you know, that, that's a kind of, you know, that, that's, that's a stepping out of, you know, a more traditional model of, you know, I do, you know, either I do what I'm told or I won't do what I'm not paid for, you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, and I mean, with, with the way that we work, it's, it's not quite the same as that because, you know, I'm, I'm quite clearly the sort of key spokesperson for this work at present um, for this particular campaign. I mean, there are other, other spokespeople also in other countries, other languages. You know, it's not, you know, we're not, not completely isolated by any means, um, but it's not a completely, it's not the same kind of totally horizontal, everyone do what they feel is right. Um, you know, there is a certain sort of structure to it, if you like. But what is really, um, noticeable and we really clocked this when we did a kind of team day recently is realizing that everybody that's come into this work has done so because they are drawn by the purpose and the purpose you know previously particularly as expressed by Polly who as we know was an enormously inspiring speaker and and person you know in, in her life um you know but there's this sense that, and this is this is where for me it, it resonates with the Frederick Laloux's definitions of um, you know when you, in, in reinventing organisations. Where I, I remember, in fact, when Polly and I uh, discovered that, we kind of went, "Oh, that's how we work. We're a teal organisation," because <laughs> um, we'd never actually read any kind of description that defined the way that we operated, which was hugely purpose-driven, and it meant that we didn't have a kind of you know silo type organization, we didn't have line managers, and, and actually, I mean, back then, we didn't even have very many people. I mean, one of the interesting things that's happened um, really since Polly's passing is this contrast between you know someone who is literally a kind of an inspirational figurehead 
and you know we worked very closely together but but she was the figurehead um and there were a few volunteers and people actually said oh my gosh you know how's this work going to carry on without her but actually what happened when she departed was actually there was a huge kind of upsurge of support and you know we now have a team of 30 odd people um and you know so it's it's, it's been really interesting but it's it's again it's that, that sort of coming together of the purpose and so in a sense the purpose which which Polly literally kind of embodied if you like has now I mean to a certain extent that's passed to me and one of our teams says oh Jojo you're the vibe holder you know and in a sense that's another kind of mode of leadership if you like you know it's I, I see myself and the way I see it I see myself as almost as a translator you know this is this concept who's you know this idea whose time has come um and all I'm doing in a sense is speaking it I mean you know I'll be completely honest it doesn't in a way it doesn't feel like it's coming from me you know it feels like i'm translating this into you know towards whichever audience it is that i'm needing to address you know whether that's i don't know a new york times reporter or whether that's a british mp or whether that's extinction rebellion you know thousands of them in trafalgar square so it'll be different each time but there's this sense of um you know myself as uh, you know my position as being you know purpose driven and idea driven um I mean, in a very, I mean, I, in a very heart-centered way. I mean, I, I, you know, I do live it, um, you know, but it doesn't feel like it's coming from my head. It feels like it's something that is simply being expressed through me, if you like. Um, and, and that's quite an interesting feeling. Um, but it's also, I, but I also know that it's something that resonates. So, you know, and I, I think people do pick up on that, you know, that, that comes through, you know, it's not, and, and I think, again, you know, over the course of um, my work with Polly, but also my work since, what's become very clear is that if you come into this work with ego, you don't last. You just don't last because there, it's, such, it's such big picture work that there is just no room for you to try and get, you know, your two penny worth in everywhere or, you know, whatever it is that you think you need. And, you know, um, we, we almost, <laughs> at one point we considered putting a sign on the door, you know, saying, if you've got baggage, leave it here or take it away. <laughs> you know, because actually there just isn't room for that. It's about actually getting done what needs to get done, getting said what needs to get said. Um, and, you know, doing that in a way that resonates for, for, for the individual doing it. And what was interesting, again, in the most recent sort of team thing that we had was just seeing how very different people's modes of operation were, but how they were all very conscious that however we worked out that they were, you know, that we were all going to work together, it had to be in support of, you know, me and the international team taking this forward at the core international level. So, you know, there is this, this, this constant sense that it's about supporting this purpose coming into being. So, you know, I, I guess that's probably the, the sort of simple, well, I say simple, I just spoke for about five minutes, but, <laughs> you know, but that, that's kind of in a nutshell how I feel about how we're, what, what we're doing and how we're operating. Yeah, it's lovely because you also, in, in this course of what you've just been talking about, you've highlighted a number of qualities, I would say, of the kind of leadership that you think is needed. You've talked about uncompromising honesty. You've talked about really listening. What I experience you saying is listening to, to the field mm. and then translating that into purpose that needs mm -hmm. to be spoken. So when you say it's not coming from you, it's like you're picking up on an idea. You said an idea whose time has come. Like yeah. an idea is there somehow in the ethers and then it gets mm -hmm. manifested through you and through others. Yes. So there's a requirement, I guess, on leaders to really listen to what is what is there that needs to be channeled into form. And mm. then you talked about leaving your ego at the door. 
So you've highlighted a number of, of different elements, I think, of leadership. And also that sometimes there's hierarchy and sometimes there isn't hierarchy. Like extinction yeah. rebellion is a kind of do what you feel called to do. And sometimes that's working really well. And sometimes people get pushed back when they say, well, actually stopping commuters on the underground is maybe not the best thing to do. So yeah. there are different, different uh, pros and cons, I guess, to different leadership styles also. Mm. So I wonder two things. One is, are there other qualities of leadership that you think are really needed now? And the other question is, where do you stand on the whole question of urgency? You know, one of the messages of Extinction Rebellion is, is panic. You know, because panic, the house, yeah. the house yeah. is on fire. And other people would say, well, when you panic is when you do crazy things. So mm. we need to have a sense of urgency, but also a kind of calm presence from which yeah. we know what to do next. So, just mm. well, I'll, t- I'll take that last one first. Actually, um, it's interesting because I mean. There's a point at which, I mean, if, if you ask any, any activist or any kind of change maker why they're doing what they're doing, almost always there is a particular point at which that person had a kind of a wake up moment. And again, almost invariably, it's one that made them angry. Um, and, it, you know, it's a moment of realization. The world is not what I thought it was. And it's something's not right. And I want to do something about it. Um, And so there's something about the way that Extinction Rebellion have approached that, that is actually harnessing that, which I think is very interesting. um, Because I mean, I, I would, I would absolutely say that without passing through, in a sense, that stage of kind of outrage, if you like, it's quite hard to galvanize into a new way of approaching something. Because, you know, particularly in our culture, in the sense that, you know, there, there is so much around us that encourages us to just be comfortable, be, be complacent, you know, fit in, compartmentalize, all of these things. And so when, you know, one has that moment of sort of revelation, if you like, I do think that it is often associated with, you know, really quite, um, yeah, outrage is probably the right, the right term. Um, and I... And I remember for me that it was, for me, it was particularly, it was around fracking. Now I had quite a lot of environmental awareness anyway, you know, compared to perhaps the average, um, partly due to upbringing and so on. But um, it was when I came across that, that, you know, there was a, it was almost like it went beyond a certain line for me, um, where it felt like, you know, literally a kind of technical, you know, large scale representation of rape. You know, that's how I perceived it. And I was like, you know, you know, injecting this poison into the earth that, you know, anyway, so that, that, that for me was this moment where I was just like, how is this even possible that people are even thinking about doing this? You know, and that's what kind of got me out of my, I don't know, my, my activist armchair, if you like, where I was happily signing petitions and so on. I thought, actually, this is boots on the ground stuff. Um, and, and I think everybody has that point. But I also think that if, if change is really to flow, that point has to be got beyond. So um, my sense is that it's partly about, again, translation, it's about translating that anger into action. But it's also at a certain point, I think, I don't know, I mean, this certainly was the case for me. You, there's, there's a certain point where, and it sounds really weird because it's, it's, not, it's not exactly about making peace because quite clearly there's, there's stuff that's wrong that we're trying to stop. And that's, in a sense, that whole campaign is about stopping the harm. So, you know, it's, it's not about losing the awareness of, of preventing the harm, but it's about, you know, bringing through, you know, what is, you know, how do we move this forward? And how do we do this in a way that actually can take others with us? And this is something that Polly was phenomenally good at in the sense that, I mean, she had this very specific ability to 
somehow have people feel safe while doing a complete conceptual U-turn because of what she was telling them. You know, so there's something about being able to do that. Um, and, you know, I, mean, I don't have that exact quality, but but what is that? Let, let's pause a bit there, because that's mm. really interesting, right? If we mm. think about that as a kind of leadership quality that maybe people are born with and maybe they can also develop. Mm. What do you think it, it was, let's say, in Polly that helped people feel safe, mm. safe enough to do radical shifts? Mm. I think I think one was that she never did present with anger. She always presented with, with essentially with love. You know, she always presented with, you know, a very kind of heartfelt um, but very clear headed at the same time. So there's partly there was some, you know, partly about about that. Um, and also she, you know, it was very non judgmental, so non confrontational. Um, and and the thing is, I mean, I, I'm aware that there's a kind of a, a risk in saying this in the sense that without confrontation, things don't change. That's a stage, you know, and, and you know, if it wasn't for, you know, the, the seven, eight years of direct anti-fracking on the ground activism, we would have had fracking in the UK many years ago. and We didn't and we haven't or it's, it's never quite taken off. Um, and so, you know, those things are absolutely, you know, necessary. But at the same time. If, if we want to actually access those who need to be on side, um, but perhaps are not culturally inclined that way, then there is, then there is a kind of, there's a kind of compassionate um, approach that I believe certainly Polly had in spades, um, you know, that, that really helps. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, Ultimately, it's actually to do with how we feel in ourselves. So, you know, while I do believe that there are techniques, you know, that probably techniques that one can learn for style, you know, styles of communication. One of the things that um, Polly and I always worked with, um, and, and, you know, I certainly still do, is when you're coming up against, uh, you know, a communication problem or a blockage in the leadership situation or in the, in the organization situation, what we always found that there was something internal that was getting in the way. We, we didn't necessarily know what it was immediately. We, we'd, we'd do these kind of exploratory sessions and, you know, just on a kind of personal level, if you like, to try and work out what is it that's getting in the way of this landing or of this actually coming across. Um, and so, you know, there was this sense that in order to successfully communicate externally you need to have clear channels and if those channels are blocked internally um you know it, it can be quite difficult and you know, some of the things that you know would that would come up would be quite surprising um i mean perhaps not to a therapist but um you know people tend to sort of relegate these things into the sort of therapy couch um but actually to incorporate that deliberately as part of a you know part of an ongoing pro you know um work process um was an interesting thing to do and also could you, could you would you be willing to name like some of the kinds of things that come up like what, what are I'm, you, I'm just you trying to think actually exactly of that um so i mean i'm, tr I'm trying to think, i mean you know some examples might be i mean i mean for me for example um I, you know i have I definitely realize I, you know, need to deal with certain things around doing things in large groups um, and approaching things in a structured way. I'm not very, you know, structure is not my natural mode of being. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, Polly and I were both very kind of fluid and, and a bit kind of maverick with how we did things. Um, and actually what I'm now finding that actually... <laughs> 
to be absolutely honest, probably never had to because we didn't have that many people there at the time. You know, we now have quite a broad team is that, you know, I'm now having to deal with the kind of both diplomatic aspects of having lots of people, you know, to deal with, but also my natural, my, and I'm still entirely sure where it comes from, my natural resistance to doing anything according to a structure, which I feel to be like ritualistic or, you know, um, and, and often it's not often, it's just like, you know, an agenda for a meeting or a, you know, um, a kind of you know I don't know a spreadsheet I mean you know literally my brain goes into fuzz when I have to look <laughs> you know a list of longer than five things that's just not the way I think about things um and so, so you know it's it's kind of having to sort of look at those those things and think okay so where does that come from and interestingly when you, I think when you do look at particular blocks like that and I and it's I'm literally doing it as we speak mm-hmm. I'm seeing all the instances in from my childhood onwards when that same feeling of resistance came up, you know, so having to kind of go back in, in a sense internally to those points and go, okay, why is it that I've got this, you know, and, 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 and often and this is, you know, this is classic therapeutic stuff, of course, is, 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 you know, going back and going, okay, right, let's look at that first instance and see if we can kind of let go of that, like consciously let go of that. And I mean, I'm, I've given you the example that I'm currently dealing with as opposed to ones that, mm-hmm. you know, came up over time because, Another thing about the way that, that, that I work is that it, I don't tend to dwell on what's already sorted. So, it, you know, it's not necessarily present to me exactly what, you know, I've had to let go of in the past, whereas this one is clearly very present. Um, but but the, the effectiveness is, is, is very interesting and, and does and seems, what's the word? Sort of, I mean, disproportionate isn't quite the right word, but what, what, what seems to happen when one does... Um, kind of unblock those things is that things start to flow that don't seem to be remotely connected to it you know there seem you know you, you suddenly find that you know the right person turns up at the right time or there's suddenly an opportunity that arises that you weren't expecting or you know I mean I you know I believe very strongly that there's you know plenty more than meets the eye you know to what goes on in this world um, and you know on a very sort of simple level you know we all know this in the sense that you know you you know, if you fall in love with somebody, that's not something that's scientifically measurable. You know, yes, okay, they can measure your, you know, your beats per minute of your heart or whatever, but actually the experience of it, you know, is something that's completely beyond, you know, 3D quantification. So I find it, you know, I find it very interesting. And I, and I think what this also shows, as human beings, we're extraordinarily uh, powerful creatures, if you like. Um, and one thing that uh, we also work with a lot is the, um, the whole the power of intent. I mean, you know, nothing in this world come, you know, nothing man-made, you know, nothing that people do comes into this world without intent. Um, and it's, you know, I perceive it as one of the strongest forces there are, you know. Um, and so, you know, there's, I mean, Polly and I did a lot of very specific intent setting. And it's interesting because it, it was often you know, the, the, the what was always very specific. The how was always left open. Um, and, and, you know, that kind of, and, and that's actually made me personally a little bit allergic to traditional strategic approaches. Um, because in my experience, when you set the exact intention, you don't actually know exactly how that is going to manifest. But just the fact that you set it makes it that much more likely to happen. Right. And that's exactly what you're also referencing when you talked about Frederick Laloux's work. And he talks about, about working with an evolving purpose, a yes. sense of evolutionary purpose. You know, that's kind of what you're talking about. You have a, 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 you set a, a purpose and an intention and then you allow it to evolve and move and, 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 and uh, 
yep. take its own form as necessary. I mean, it's beautiful what you're describing because I think, and you're also modeling it in a way, because I think what you've, what you've itemized in different ways are a number of ingredients for leadership. You've talked about, about and, and when you talked about Polly's qualities, for example, you talked about love, compassion, non-judgment. You're talking also about what I would call kind of inner awareness and being willing to go on a kind of personal development journey to clean up the parts that are, that are blocking access mm -hmm. to what you need to block. Maybe it's therapeutic. Maybe it's also just personal development. You know, yeah. we, in our company, yeah. we work a lot with kind of archetypal development. And as you're talking, I think, ah, yeah, there's a kind of archetypal profile here in you. And maybe there's a kind of strategist of the sovereign parts that need a little bit of amplifying. And you've got a lot of storyteller and renegade and prima archetypes that are very activated. So, so, you know, we all have our parts that are a little bit latent and dormant and these activating mm -hmm. and other parts that are serving really well. So, but I think what you highlight is the need for leaders to have a practice of self-awareness. And it sounds mm. like you did it in, in a pair sometimes with Polly. Mm. Yeah. The, the places where we look inside and think, what's, what's happening in me that mm. is restricting my capacity to serve now? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you bring up something else there, which is this whole concept of service, um, you know, that comes also with, uh, you know, I believe with the kind of purpose-driven type of organization. Um, and... You know, people, I, I mean, I find that people accomplish extraordinary things when they consider themselves to be in service to something that they hugely value, um, you know, and that they believe is really important. And, and I think we see that with, you know, with voluntary work generally, you know, people, you know, people might have a, what they consider to be a really boring, just got to put the bread on the table job. But then what they do on a Saturday is extraordinary. You know, um, you, 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 there's, this, there's this sense that, that um, being in service to something gives an added um kind of range to what people are capable of um and i do know that for both i mean polly absolutely considered herself to be in service and and, and I, I you know and i feel like actually i feel like our whole team is like that on on, on very in various different ways so for me there was a very specific moment and perhaps importantly there was also very it was also to a very specific place and landscape and that's the landscape around the town where I grew up and, and have returned to with my kids um, having traveled you know in, in the meantime and lived in London for a long time but and that's Stroud in Gloucestershire um, which is you know rapidly becoming quite well known because it was also the birthplace of Extinction Rebellion um, and you know the co-founders were all friends of ours and you know Polly and I worked here and so it's becoming you know it's becoming quite well known for its uh, slightly radical green credentials. Um, but it's also an extremely beautiful part of the world. Um, and yeah, and for me, I feel, you know, I feel enormously rooted in this particular place. Um, and that doesn't mean I don't travel. I'm actually starting to have to travel even more, um, quite a lot, but, um, but the connection to a particular sort of place on the earth was very important for me. Um, I think that's important for leaders in general to have a sense of place mm. or how would you, there's something about relationship to place, relationship to earth, clearly mm. that's a sense that we want leaders to have a sense of being part of an interconnected web of life, let's say, and feeling themselves yeah. part of a planet. How, but I'm curious about what you're saying about place. Like how, how important do you think it is for people to be grounded in a sense of place? I mean, for me, it's absolutely essential. Um, I think that, uh, you know our culture because travel is so easy you know the, in a sense if you you know if you're earning above a certain threshold you you have access to travel in a way that is um you know quite extraordinary and unprecedented in our culture and so i mean i'm personally conscious that uh, certainly you know in in kind of you know well to do 
aspects you know arenas in in you know our culture people are not as rooted as they might have once been um and i do think that actually finding where you feel is your home is actually very important I, and i think i think because also you know i mean i've heard you know people uh, who are very wealthy and very well connected talking about what are they going to do when it comes to the apocalypse yeah? they're not talking about how do we prevent the apocalypse <laughs> they're talking about how, how do we escape the apocalypse now for most people that's just not going to be an option you know they can't fly off to the whatever bit of land they've bought in new zealand to go and you know take their private security guard with them and hope that they don't rebel you know actually what most people are going to be doing is connecting with their own communities because that is what survival and resilience is going to mean and for that i think place is absolutely key um and you know i'm not interested in you know i don't know escaping somewhere with my family i'm interested in connecting with the people around me you know and making sure that there's a resilience there that actually will serve us whatever you know the world may hold and i think that um education has a lot to look at I mean, not currently part of what's happening in, in the education curriculum in the sense that, you know, kids are supposedly being prepared for jobs and careers. But frankly, in 20 years time, we don't know what that's going to look like. You know, yes, of course, we're all going to be doing things. But, you know, we don't know whether the current structures are going to survive in the, you know, if, in the current, you know, climate <laughs> to coin a phrase um so there's that and the other thing that i think is really important in terms of uh, coming to the leadership question again coming right back around is um and, and, and linking it with the education system certainly as i perceive it in the uk um is that there's a bit of a tendency to encourage everybody to be moderately good at all the same things yeah. and you know my sense is that that is both restricting and a huge wasted opportunity i appreciate that from a sort of governmental perspective it's difficult if you're trying to provide an education for everybody how do you do that to suit individuals um, but there's something about the way that um, education is delivered as a kind of a package that everybody has to do, you know do a certain range of things um, and also of course the, the the way that we you know we grade people um, so that it seems like the one thing everyone ought to be as a university professor um, now obviously we can do with some university professors but um, you know it seems to miss out on an extraordinary range of what people's talents truly are and I believe that what that means is that often people can be a lot older before they really discover where their strengths are um, whereas you know what I feel we, we should be able to encourage people to do is to really shine at the thing they love doing and are really good at you know because actually that's where the inspiration lies and you know I don't really believe you can lead anybody unless you're inspired um, and so you know for me it's, it's very much about kind of identifying what um, uh, one, one TED talk I saw the other day somebody was describing it as everyone has their own superpower you know and it's kind of you know about identifying what that real essence is you know and, and i think the first place you can start is what is the thing you really love doing because that is the thing that you are going to convey better than anything else to other people yeah i totally agree and it reminds me of two of the other people that i've interviewed in, in this series one is christiana figueres who i'm sure you will <laughs> know well yeah and she she was she talks about you know when people say what is the thing we should do what is the thing we should do she said do what you love and do that fully mm. 
And another person is Scylla Elworthy, who you probably also know. Yeah, and I mean, actually, I've met Scylla. I haven't actually met Christiana yet. <laughs> right. So, so Scylla talks about, about, you've talked about outrage. Like, what is it that, that brings you to a place of outrage? And, and Scylla talks about what, where is it that your heart breaks? Mm-hmm. Because where your heart breaks is where your gold is. You're like, that, mm-hmm. that's, that's your calling then. If you notice my heart breaks around this, then there's a calling to, to be active around that, that, mm-hmm. uh, that area. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you so much. We've, you've covered a wide range of things. I think you've given us a lot of food for thought. I'm just wondering if there's any last comment you want to make or last kind of message you'd want to, you'd want to send out. This podcast will be heard in probably in boardrooms and in corporate settings <laughs> and, and grassroots settings also. Is there any note you'd like to sound about how you're, how you're standing and or sitting at the moment with regard to the next 10 or 15 years? Wow. Um, so I suppose... Um, the thing that the thing that springs to mind, um, apart from obviously sending everybody to our website, stopecoside.earth, um, but um, the thing that that really comes to mind is that I'm not in this for well, obviously I'm not in it for the money. Frankly, you know, we we, we worked for nothing for an awfully long time, um, but it's not that either. I've spoken to people recently who've talked about what they'd like to do, bef- you know, what they'd like to sort of feel like they've done before they retire. Um, now. I don't feel, I just, the concept of retirement to me, I find extraordinary. You know, it, it's, it's not because I expect this to take so long, I'm going to die before it finishes, you know, absolutely not. Um, but it's, it's more of a question that, you know, this is the thing that I've committed myself to. Um, and so I'm going to carry on with it until it's done. Um, and then most likely something else is going to come up that I'm going to want to carry on until that's done. You know, because for me, it's actually about, you know, the inspiration that's pulling me forward or the, you know, the purpose that's pulling me forward. Um, and I feel like, I suppose it's coming back to that sense of purpose and feeling like the way that we all, you know, that, that is kind of emerging that I'm seeing emerging in um, both movements and projects that are really picking up pace and, and having impact is when there is this sense of, it, it, it's it's a sense of being driven, I suppose, but in it, but in a kind of in a very positive sense, um, and and being you know purpose driven um, rather than kind of trying to fit into a trajectory of a career which you then retire from. Right, and you've been very um, shy, maybe, about asking people to become earth protectors. <laughs> that's certainly a possibility right and maybe you just want to close by explaining what that is and i think it's mm. very valid to invite people who are listening to this to sign up and become an earth protector i think that would be wonderful i mean um we we see criminal law as protective law i mean a very simple way of explaining that is to say that you know we've all got a right to life but unless it's a crime to kill somebody your right to life isn't worth very much um, so for us, ecocide is the same uh, equivalent protection for nature. So you can you can give nature rights, and actually a lot of places now are starting to do that. There's a strong nature rights movement, but we feel that's half the story, and that actually criminal law is protective law, which is why um, you know we see you know the people who sign up to our campaign are called Earth Protectors, um, and we would absolutely welcome anyone and everyone to sign up to our campaign and you know sort of donate into it it's it's kind of it's a little bit like um you know corporate lobbying for a law which we know goes on you know that that these big corporations essentially you know take the right people to dinner you know make the right diplomatic connections make the right connections in government and you know affect the laws that they want and effectively what we're doing is exactly that but people powered 
So becoming an earth protector is literally directly supporting, you know, lobbying for a law that actually we all want to protect the earth we love. So yes, absolutely. Go to our website, stopecoside.earth and become an earth protector. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. I think that's a great note to close. We can lobby, we can lobby for the earth. So absolutely. So thank you so much, Jojo, for your time. I know you're super busy and have a lot of things on your plate, not <laughs> least of which is, is bringing about ecocide. So thanks for your time today. And I think you've given us a lot of food for thought. And we Thank wish you, you every success with the campaign. Oh, many thanks. Mm -hmm.